Hi, everyone. This is Ray Fraunhofer, author of Accidental Project Manager, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Ray Fraunhofer. Ray is the managing partner of PPC Group, specializing in helping aspiring new and accidental project managers improve their project management practice. Ray has led engagements in multiple industries of all sizes and many areas globally over his nearly 40-year project management career. Notable projects include rolling out a Unix development environment to over 400 developers in 16 locations, testing electronic voting equipment with a team of 30 for San Diego County, patenting and patenting an estimating tool that was put into use by a global PMO. No stranger to virtual intent international teams, he has been working with and leading them his entire career. Ray holds an undergraduate degree in math and a concentration in comp sci and an MBA in technology management. He's also a PMI Leadership Institute master's class graduate. Ray lives in San Diego, California, and is here to talk about his book, Accidental Project Manager, Zero to Hero in Seven Days. Welcome, Ray. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Tell me, when you were growing up, Ray, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? It was my mother the most. She was very organized. When you opened up a cupboard, you could see where something went back. And that organization rubbed off on me. And I've always wanted to be organized. And that was a great attribute for project managers. Do you remember an example of maybe during high school years where you suddenly took something on and started to apply your organizing prowess to it? Yeah. Like everyone, I had to do a lot of things during high school to prep for college and participated in the school chorale and chorus, participated as a reporter for the the school paper, and took on a lot of other activities, which I had to start organizing my time around and still also maintain my grade point average and graduate. Do you find that the aphorism, if you want to get something done, ask a busy person, has been true for you and others who you've observed? Yes. As a matter of fact, I rarely say no. I will say something like, I can do that three weeks from now with that work rather than say, no, I can't do it. Because in my mind, saying no is saying, I don't want to. I don't want to build that type of relationship with people. Ray, in order to be an effective project manager, you've got to be able to have both the technical skills as well as the people skills. Where did you learn the people skills from? Did you have a mentor who was particularly helpful to you? Did you just observe and commit yourself to studying it? Where did that come for you? It came a lot from observation. My very first job out of college College. My manager was Jimmy, and he was the head of a division of a government agency. This was a fairly large government agency, and it was based in the Baltimore area. Jimmy was a great example of a really bad manager, bad with people. He told his employees that he was the big cheese, that we did the work, and he was there to just prod us on. My second job, I had a manager who was 180 degrees different. He was very warm and welcoming. He and his wife would invite the team over to their home maybe every couple of months for a team dinner. He was very personable, got along with everyone. He was the type like me who would never say no. Just an overall great guy. That's part of where I learned that from. That really helped me. So Jim was the first one who was very strict and very uh, authoritarian and said, I'm just here to prod you along. What was the name? 
name of the second mentor uh, you had? Larry, Larry was Larry. the second. You really were able to learn some of the best qualities from each person, weren't you? Because you can't get by with just being strictly task oriented and you can't be by completely going by whatever makes people happy. There's a meld, there's a combination or a balance between those. So that's right. It, it's always about a balance and working with people as individuals as well as a team to understand what the individuals want out of the project as much as what the team needs to accomplish. Well, that's an interesting perspective. I think many new managers will say, wow, how do you take into account what individuals want and need out of a project? Give me a couple examples of what individuals look for as part of participating in a project team. I have a really great example from a, a second position in the same company Larry worked for. My manager at that time was John. And John gave me an assignment to take over a team that he was also just tasked with taking over, where the company had fired three managers before. The team was really low morale, really low performing, and yet they performed a very critical responsibility within the company. So nobody was happy. The team wasn't happy. The company wasn't happy. And what I did was then going in, I scheduled both one-on-one -on -one time with each employee and then meetings with the whole team so that I could learn what they wanted to accomplish. And some of the desires were things like get the right kind of training, be recognized for the work that they were doing. Some of them hadn't even received a promotion or a salary increase in years, despite the fact that this was a time when everyone was getting an increase. Now, those were the types of things that I learned from having those meetings. And as a group, we decided, and I say we because I didn't dictate what they were going to do. I facilitated what we were going to do, but they volunteered what they believed they needed to do in order to turn around the team. But we were successful in less than a year. Imagine since this was an early assignment, you're working with people who are older and more experienced than you were. Is that true? That's very true. Most of them were older. And I think only one on the team was younger. And, and that was the person who did the technical support for the team. How did you deal with that? There are a lot of people who are in that position now who would love a tip or an insight to help them be effective and less apprehensive of leading teams with people who are older and more experienced than they are. Part of it I owe to the company process. We had an onboarding process for managers where the manager and an HR representative would take the team, we'd have a nice lunch together, and then the team could ask anything that they wanted. So anything they wanted to know about, I promised to be an open book. We had that great discussion. So any fears that they had about a new manager and anything that they were concerned about got addressed right up front before I even showed up in my office for the first day. I remember doing similar things like that at restaurants when I worked at Apple. And it's a very different experience having a lot of talented people around and saying, okay, go ahead, ask me anything. Literally the AMA sessions they have today. How would you suggest that people approach this when you don't have the opportunity, when we're working remotely and either travel isn't possible or getting together in large groups in a restaurant is impossible. How can you facilitate that effectively in today's work environment? First of all, not every company I've worked for has done that. But after that experience, I've always made sure that I've done it. I've invited the team and had some time with them before we actually started work. Zoom and other similar tools, Microsoft Teams, are great ways to facilitate face-to-face -face meetings. It's not quite the same as being there, but 
You can see everyone. We can have the same discussion. And I've found I get the same result. Many managers have complained for the past two years, coming up on three years, that when they say to people, hey, is everything okay? They don't get the response that they are expecting about personal lives. There isn't the level of detail exchange when people ask oftentimes. What have you found that enables you to ask and create the environment that allows for that give and take that gets people to know each other and trust each other more? It's establishing that open and honest communication and transparent communication. One, one of the things that I did with that difficult team was we had an agreement through three layers of management that we would be transparent and that it was okay for anybody on this team to ask any of the three managers in the chain of command anything that they wanted at any time and that we would be as open and honest as possible. But that meant sometimes they'd ask a difficult question like, we hear their layoffs. Is there something going to happen to us? I would say, I haven't heard that yet, which was often true. But as soon as I learn something, I'll be sure to let you know. I really value what you're doing. And I'm sure that the organization values what you're doing as well. Just giving them the positive feedback. That creates safety. That creates that kind of environment that allows people to trust you just a little bit more, especially when you then deliver, when you find some important news. I found that trust is really essential to building high performing teams. And that when you start from that position, it's a lot easier to build a high-performing team than if you're struggling with other things and not building trust. Trust isn't a given, and neither are the most important aspect of designing a project, which are the requirements. Those aren't ever given, and when they are given, people should really be skeptical about them, shouldn't they? If a project manager is handed a list of project requirements, how is it that you encourage people to be effective? Because that's often the setup for an accidental project manager. Someone gets the assignment and says, oh, and here's what we need built. What do you encourage people to do to make sure that the requirements for the project, what everything is going to be measured against, are accurate, complete, and detailed enough to succeed? I always have a lot of good open-ended questions that I ask at the beginning of any project. One of them, for example, is of the project stakeholder or client, the project sponsor or client, and asking them, what does success look like to you? That gets them to open up about what they really value, what they're really looking for, and that opens up the door to some conversation. I have a series about six or seven open-ended questions like that that I will typically ask at the start of a project just to make sure that we have clarity about everything. And again, it starts with that open, honest, transparent communication from me as the project manager to my client. Ray, a great example of really bad project requirements is something that you cite in the book. It's the first movie of Star Wars where the Death Star is being built. It's got enormous offensive capabilities. Yet, as we see in the movie, there's this one vulnerability that Luke Skywalker is able to take advantage of and drop a photon torpedo down and then blow up this gigantic weapon. What is that metaphor useful for helping people understand about the importance of project requirements and knowing that you have to think about things that maybe even the people who are telling you what the requirements aren't able to articulate themselves? I call it uh, requirement solicitation rather than requirements gathering or, or anything else. And I call it elicitation because it's really about drawing out requirements from people. You really have to work at that. There are often these vulnerabilities that are unthought of. And it's not only getting the people who are providing the requirements 
but it's also going back to the team and working with them to think through the vulnerabilities and getting some input from the team and doing an appropriate risk management, which is part of project management. Another example of not checking assumptions with project management design, the Suez Canal, which you also wrote about. I love that example because it showed how people had assumed that the conditions would be the same as in Panama, as it was at the Suez Canal. The equipment could be used the same. It wouldn't affect their impact, the timelines. Talk about why you selected that example and what other lessons you draw from it in order to help project managers become more effective at this stage. I think that, as you pointed out, Bill, that was really a great example of an unfounded assumption. And unfounded assumptions are the death of projects. I think about how that can be applied throughout the whole project cycle. Very often, for example, there'll be a critical handoff from one team member to another. The project manager should never assume that handoff is taking place. I think it's what Ronald Reagan said best, trust, but verify. So trust and accountability are so important and so intertwined. How does someone show trust yet also make sure that project is going to meet the requirements without micromanaging in the process? Let me give you a good example of someone who I worked with for many years. His name was Norm. And Norm was the manager of about 50 people who were working on that big Unix rollout. I was a program manager working for Norm. We were based in the Rockville, Maryland area, and we had 16 locations, eight in the U.S. and in other countries where we had to roll out this system. Norm ran the team, this group of 50, much like a doctor does rounds. Norm would come by every day and just poke his head in your office and say, hey, Ray, how's it going today? If I said, everything is great, Norm, he'd just say, that's good. Keep up the good work. And he'd move on to the next office. But if I said something like, Norm, I'm having a problem working on this detail of the schedule. He'd come in and he'd say, tell me about it and just keep quiet. Then I'd say, Norm, I'm trying to get this expert available at this time and this material that this expert needs at this time and I'm having trouble doing it. And suddenly in the process, I'd realize, oh, I know the solution to that. I'd say, okay, Norm, I, I think this is what I'm going to do. He said, I trust you to get the job done. He'd hop up and he'd go to the next office. He would visit 50 people every day that way just to keep us all on the same page, not make assumptions, but yet also build this relationship with us. It was a great environment to work in. Everybody trusted and respected him. What would you say to a, a new person on a team who's looking to become a project manager in terms of them thinking that they should be able to solve problems on their own and not answer fully when somebody says, is there anything that's going wrong? Is there a problem? They're thinking to themselves, if I just have another week, I could figure it out. But you and I are thinking about that in a way that are saying, if they don't figure it out, then we might be a week behind project and that's going to cause all sorts of other cascading issues. What do you say to people to help them understand that when a project manager asks, is there anything wrong? Is there anything delayed? Is there anything not going as you thought it would? They really want to know. It gets back to that open and honest communication and that when I'm open and honest with them and demonstrate that as an example, they will hopefully be open and honest to me. I've worked in some environments where managers say, we don't want to talk about anything negative. 
that just shuts down the discussion. Nobody wants to bring anything up then. Whereas I'm always there in the position saying, tell me about it, showing them that there's no penalty, that I'm there to help. My job is to remove roadblocks and help you succeed, not to put you down, not to make you feel bad, not to get you off the team. My job is to help lift you up and help everyone get the job done. Let's switch that around. Let's say that you have a very open and forthright engineer on a project and he tells his the project manager something's not going right and the project manager starts to shut him down and say, wait a second, we don't want problems here. Don't tell anyone because that's going to really undermine confidence. It's going to make us look bad. What would you encourage someone who runs into that type of situation to think about doing so that they could make the project successful without harming that relationship? They're going to have to figure out who else they can talk to about it. One of the things I encourage project managers to do is to develop lateral relationships with their peers and and people in uh, other organizations, and they can help solve problems that you and your team may not be able to solve. So you don't have to betray trust, but you can go get advice from others. Again, very often I'd work with teams where they would be stuck on a problem and I'd say, you know what? Sally over in that department knows the answer to that. I'm going to go over and talk to Sally on behalf of the team. Sally might say, I don't have time to deal with this right now, but talk to Joe, my employee, and he he can give you 10 minutes. That's often all it was getting a little bit of a head start, getting a little bit of direction on where to turn to solve the problem. Take that back to team and then move forward. That works with personal problems. That works with relationship problems. It works with technical problems. So I always had someone that I could go to in the organization that I I could ask questions without having to go to my manager or my manager's manager and make them look bad or make myself look bad in their eyes. I've been a fan and a student of really good kickoff meetings. How important do you view kickoff meetings in terms of setting the tone and establishing positive momentum when kicking off a significant project? They're really critical because it's the first time that the team, the client, the project manager, any significant stakeholders are all going to get together to learn about the project, share ideas. Again, we talked earlier about unknown requirements or assumptions about requirements. Sometimes those things can come out of those meetings, right? So they're so critical to building that environment of trust and communication, critical to finding out some flaws because you're having people thinking through things. So don't just take it as a time for the project manager to speak and say what everybody is going to do. It's a time for everybody to talk about the project and think thoughtfully about what the topics of discussion are going to be, who's going to present them, who's welcome to speak about them, which should be everyone and uh, go on from there. What are one or two best practices that you've encountered and what are one or two negative or harmful practices that you've seen, especially in today's work from home, work remotely, working with large teams that we all can't gather together into a conference room or some large theater like we have in, in the past? What do you suggest that people think about doing and not doing? In line of our discussion with requirements, one of the best practices I have is to not just head out and start to think that you're going to elicit requirements, but rather plan through them. Plan for the requirement solicitation. Know what questions you want to ask, what order you want to ask them in, what information is essential for you to learn. Leave enough time in your planning to have those 
additional discussions about things that come up, things that people think about. Don't just get the information and close the door, give it some time and, and have that plan in place so that you can really get good requirements. Another best practice that I think about for project managers is that they're really going to be remembered for project closeout, for the delivery of the project. Projects can last a year, two years, longer. Nobody's going to remember that argument you had with somebody at the beginning of the project. They're going to remember you for the delivery. So you want to plan the delivery up front. I've seen so many projects where they scramble to get the documentation, the training, all these pieces together to deliver. I've got that in the schedule. I've got that in the plan. That's being worked on as we go along. Very often the training gets pieced together as we go forward. At the end, we want to make sure everything is complete. I, I establish a client meeting where we can demonstrate the product or the service that we're creating, get their feedback on it, ask them if there are any other tests that we'd want to run or that they, they want to have run, and continue that discussion so that the end clients have some time to think about what they want. And if they do find something, don't just give up in despair. Make sure that you acknowledge it, that you're going to put a plan in place to correct it. You don't want people to find something broken when, once the project is delivered. I, I know it's very hard in software, especially. You have a team that, that thinks they've done a really great job and you give it to the client. Two minutes after they use the software, something blows up and you just acknowledge it. Say, all right, I understand that. Let's go get that fixed and have a plan in place to provide that level of support at the end of the project. I'm smiling as you describe that because I remember situations early on where I didn't know to check for this. And, and you see the client or the customer start to put characters into a number field. And you weren't supposed to do that. You didn't plan. What if somebody does do that? Then we've learned how to do both constructive and destructive testing, white and black hat testing, to make sure that you do the things that you're not supposed to do before you hand it over to the client. Exactly. Many software teams hated me because I was always the one who would think of the thing that clients would do that, that maybe weren't in a use case. I, I try to emphasize to the team, you can't just follow the use case. You have to think about what happens if the client strays and they're going to. That's one thing you could count on for sure. Let's get back to something very fundamental. I love that you start the book with the definition of a project because so many people think that every task is a project. You start off and you say a project is something that has a begin date and an end date. It is looks to work against a specified outcome and create something new that's not existed before. I think that implicit in that, you also talk about my fourth component of that, which is it's something that is funded and deliberate. It's not something that is being conducted on the side. It's something that's overt and you have resources dedicated. How do you make the distinction for people who confuse projects and processes or projects and other things that are similar, but that don't fall within those parameters. A good example came from one of my classes where I had just finished talking about that definition. And one of my students, Jack, at the back of the class said, Ray, I manage 72 projects every week. I was like, wow, I've been in this situation where I've had to manage two or three projects, but 72? Tell me more about what you do. He said, I have a budget because clients send me a purchase order. I have a schedule because they have a delivery date that they want it by. I, I have requirements because they give a custom chemical solution that they want. By the way, it's new and unique because we've never mixed that chemical solution before. He went through all of that. I said, tell me, do you really think you have a project? I said, 
one of the other acid tests, if you will, is projects typically spend money, whereas operations have to make money. Do you have to be profitable in mixing these solutions? He said, yes, my, my company makes a profit from it. So I said, well, I, I think really what you're talking about is you have this repeated process. It has a lot of elements of projects in it, but you're really repeating the same steps over and over again. It may have been a project the first few times that you did this, and it may be a project if you have to scale out to, to do 172 solutions in a week. But right now you've really got an operation going. And one of the, one of the other tests is that you're making a profit. Projects typically don't make profits. Those are the products. That's the realm of the product manager to worry about. You're, you're just repeating a process for everyone. That's a great distinction. Ray, are you ready for the my quest for the best lightning round? I am, Bill. I'll give it my best. So earlier we talked about a person who inspired you growing up and you talked about your mother. Tell me, when you were teenager, Ray, what's a song that you like? So I really had to think about this one, Bill, because I grew up in an age when there wasn't portable music and we could listen to songs over and over again. My family had a rather extensive record collection, so I rarely heard the same song twice. I also played piano and I had a huge repertoire, but I realized that there was one song that I heard every day because I stopped to think about this recently. There is a gentleman by the name of John Gambling and three generations of John Gambling have run the Rambling with Gambling Show on radio. Their song when the show started was pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile. I heard that every morning because my mother, my father, my grandmother were all listeners of that show. That was always on every morning when I got up for school. What is it that you use to help you stay on track and productive just in managing your day and your focus on your work? So I've shifted more from micromanaging myself to using some of the Bill Gates strategy. So I make sure that my top task for the day is completed is the first thing. I don't check my email. I'll maybe have breakfast, but the, the top task of the day gets done first. Then I block out my day in chunks of time. I'm going to spend the afternoon working on my next book, or I'm going to spend the afternoon working on a class. I don't micromanage my time, but I rather think about the big things that I have to do. I love that philosophy of putting first things first. Ray, what would you say is the best advice you ever got, either career advice or personal advice? The, 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 the best advice I got was to write my book as a business fable. I, ac I actually had a, a friend who I also employed as a consultant for my business, and uh, he was the one who helped me come up with the concept of accidental project manager and to build a business fable around it. And that really helped my book succeed where my previous one. What would you say is the worst advice? You don't need to mention names, but what's the worst advice you ever received? Oh, some of the worst advice I received was to try and sell books as a set of two where one provided some information and the second one was more of the how to deliver that information. I tried that with my first book. It didn't really succeed. I think it can work in some environments, but it was a good advice for me. When are you being successful? When you think about it, what are your criteria for personal success? I know a lot of people say it's about having the time to do the things that you love, 
but I think it's that meeting of doing the, having the time to do the things you love and also loving everything that you do. That's what's guided me for the last, I'd say, seven or eight years. And it's really helped my success. When you think back in the last week, what do you think back on as a highlight that you got to love doing and something that you look forward to that was something that you just were so glad you were in a position that you were able to devote time to something that brought you so much pleasure? I actually had an idea for a new book and also had an idea for a co-author for the new book and had a meeting with him last week. We agreed on how we were going to move forward. I've actually started writing. I'm really excited about it. It it's something that I love doing. So I'm hoping that by the spring that there'll there'll be another project management book in my set. Fabulous. I hope you keep us in mind when you get near to having it come out. I will. Right. What would you say is the most important habit, belief, or routine that you've stopped doing that's giving you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction in the last year? So that, that's an interesting question because the pandemic has uh, really changed a lot of things. I was always of the mindset that I would never lose weight. And during the pandemic, I, I had to stop eating out as much as I did. I actually started cooking more at home, started getting home meal prep kits. And I, I learned that it was all about portion control. And unintended during the pandemic, where, where a lot of people have been putting on weight, I've actually lost about 10 pounds and I'm still going. What's interesting is that my next question is about gold plating, which which is giving the customer more than they ask for, which is going beyond the portion control in a project requirement. And many times, eager project managers think that this is exactly the thing to do to make their reputation or to make the client really love it. They devote time to it. Maybe they don't ask permission. Maybe they don't get the proper checks in order to do this. Why is this dangerous in your experience? So it's, it's especially dangerous in the software world, Bill, software world, Bill as I'm sure you, you probably remember. Often that little bell or whistle is some developer saying, I want to put in just this one more line of code. Through a lot of my career, we worked in a very strict development environment. That one line of code, along with all the other code, had to go through extensive testing, had to go through a QA department, it had to get some customer exposure all before it actually rolled out. That one line of code, I can't tell you the number of times that it just made the release late because that one line of code didn't work and brought the rest of the system down. Ray, you have given us such great advice today and helped us understand and helped me understand even more about being an effective project manager, whether it's intentional or accidental. And the seven steps that you go through in your book really do help people go through the process and become better at thinking about project management so they can go from zero to hero, starting with the requirements and preparing for the requirements, all the way through delivery and making sure it's that white glove delivery that you talk about. I want to thank you so much for sharing your insights about your mother, about the idea of making things more organized so that they flow better, about working with the different people who you've had the pleasure and opportunity to learn from, like Jimmy and Larry and John, who you learned from in your first work experience. How requ requirements aren't necessarily fixed, but there's something that should be a starting point for managers so that it becomes a requirement solicitation. And for these ideas and so many more, I want to thank you for joining me today on my quest for the best. Thank you, Bill. It's my pleasure to be here. Great. 
before we say goodbye for now, tell me, where is it we could find out more about you and your work online? Uh, go and visit accidentalpm. We're going to point to accidentalpm.online in the show notes, so it's super easy for people to find. We'll also point to your social media, as well as links to buy your book so people could keep up with what's going on in your world. And Ray Fraunhofer, author of Accidental Project Manager, From Zero to Hero in Seven Days, I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thanks, Bill. Have a great day. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.